0: everybody, welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 247. My name is Cameron English, your host as always. That's Dr. Liza Dunn, co-pilot, expert on all kinds of interesting topics. She's here to fill in the gaps where I don't know what I'm talking about. Liza, what's going on?
1: How are you? <laughs> Fine. How are you? How's the weekend going?
0: It's, uh, it's magical. By the time everyone sees us, you will have had your Christmas. So we hope you had a great holiday season. Well wishes for the new year. And um, to start things off, I want to say I discovered something called the woozle effect on Twitter. I didn't know this was a thing. Did you know um, what this was?
1: No, I found it on Med Twitter.
0: Okay. Okay, so so you can you can explain it cuz it sounds it sounds like a funny name. Everyone knows what it is though once you hear it. So can you explain that just really quick cuz it's it's kind of amusing.
1: Yes, well it's it's the, the what it is is when a paper er, is cited multiple times for a claim that it actually doesn't make. So people cite, make these citations. This paper said that glyphosate causes you know, cancer and you actually then go read the paper and the paper doesn't say that at all. And you see that over and over and over again in a lot of medical literature. Um, so if people are just sort of uh, repeating and regurgitating what other papers uh, supposedly say without actually having read the paper. And where it comes from is a Winnie the Pooh story, right? And you tell them that part.
0: Yeah, yeah. So if you've, if you've seen Winnie the Pooh, there's this mythical character called a woozle that they're always trying to chase down. I forget. They're either trying to find one or stay away from them, but there's heffalumps and woozles. And so <laughs> yes. there, there's a, there was a team of social scientists in the 70s, the 80s, and they came up with this concept to explain this, <laughs> apparently that's like this mythical claim. It just kind of, it builds and builds and everyone believes it, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> so Winnie,
1: Winnie the Pooh and Piglet are following their own footsteps back. And they think they're ar- right. around and around and around because they think they're on the track of, of a woozle. So yes, yeah. it's, it's hilarious.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's because as soon as I saw the tweet, I saw, it came to mind a story I wrote where, it was about glyphosate and endocrine disruption, and uh, the scientists I interviewed for the story, they said this this review that they cited to justify their paper says the exact opposite of what they claim it says. And so I looked at it, and sure enough, like in the abstract, glyphosate is not an endocrine disruptor, you know? So I was like, this is so fascinating that this is all over the medical and the scientific literature.
1: That's exactly right. And the other thing that you can find is there's a, there's a study called AgriCan, um, which is looking at Uh, all comers who uh, are exposed to pesticides, all comers that work in agriculture um, in France. Um, So, bankers, lawyers, anybody that's got a connection to agriculture is part of this prospective cohort study. And the first uh, the first section with, that they've looked at or the first topic that they've covered is cancer. so Agrican is what they've been looking at. And in the text, they make claims about pesticides being associated with cancer. Um, and then you actually show, the tables and they make claim that women who put pesticides on crops are had have a higher risk of melanoma and glioblastoma and you actually look at their own data on the table and it's not there it's so they it, 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 where does this data come from you're making it up
0: yeah it, it it's it's fascinating in its own right and there's a reason we're bringing it up though as you'll see as we go through and we're going to do just two stories uh this time because we want to spend a little more time on both just sort of delving deep into some of the ideas because they're really important to uh to discuss so this first one is called uh oh where's the headline there it is following sensationalism how media distort science including courts and regulators and then we're going to talk about a specific example of the woozle effect but then also some of these ideas in this first story so this is by our good friend uh uh, Dr. Kevin Fulta, originally writing for the Genetic Literacy Project. It's called, Glyphosate Can Harm Pregnant Women Living Near Farms? Question mark. I never know how to say a question out loud question mark. <laughs> a carelessly written article based on the same author's academic study shows how misinformation metastasizes. Okay, so this first piece we're going to talk about, this is by uh, Richard Williams and Nathan Schottman. And Richard Williams, I want to say, used to be at the FDA. He was some some, some sort of regulator at the FDA. I don't recall exactly. And then Nathan Schottman is a, a lawyer. And his specialty, I believe, is, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, product liability, that kind of stuff. You know, what, like if there's claims that a company makes a product that is harmful, that's the sort of area of the law that he works in. But here they're just talking about how science is abused in the courtroom. This is really well-worn territory for us. But... The problem seems to be, at least according to them, is that you have <clears throat> you have bad studies that come out, and then you have uh, media, you know, CNN, AP, Reuters, and so forth, they cover this research, and then you have environmental groups or activist groups, they either do their own research, research in quotes, um, or they just take really low-quality studies and they amplify them, and then everyone finds out about them. And then this becomes the fuel for lawsuits, and it's not coincidental that a lot of these groups have relationships with law firms or they get donations from from law firms (laughs) you know so it's this it's this nasty vicious rotten circle (laughs) where there's a lot of people getting rich by lying to the public and And if you
1: if you look at a good a good person to follow on twitter to get into more detail about this is david zuruk um the the risk monger he's got a he's got a a a, uh a blog called uh the fire break which really gets into great detail so i would encourage anybody who's interested in this to to actually go follow him and read his uh blogs on this it's very good
0: he just did a two-part series on a specific study um on glyphosate i want to say it's called trouble in the heartland or corruption in the heartland or something but it's about this 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 institute that was set up to do glyphosate studies it was set up by lawyers and by people who were paid by the organic food industry. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was set up. It's a whole, it's a whole nother story. We'll, we'll talk about it sometime, but, but yeah, David Zeric, Excellent follow. Cause he does the journalism that journalists don't do. They just, that's right. he, he, he sent them stories. He says, here, look at all this stuff. And they just, they won't do it. So he does it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, in any case, that's, that's sort of the issue that they're dealing with in this uh, DC journal piece. And, their their solution ultimately is is to say we need ripe science. So I guess apparently I didn't know this, but in in, in legal circles there's this concept of ripeness. So like a case is ripe when you can make it based on legitimate evidence or there's a strong legal standing for an argument. I think that's what it means. But they say that we need something similar for science. So lawyers shouldn't go into the courtroom with underdeveloped uh, hypotheses or you know just preliminary studies that shouldn't be used to justify litigation. Exactly. So the idea I I don't know how this is supposed to happen lies and maybe you can speak to that I mean there 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 are supposedly um, you know checks and balances in place like the the most well-known one is the Dalbert standard where you're supposed you're supposed to have a judge say this expert is qualified to be uh, a witness in this case or this one's not but that does not work nearly as well as it should because you have like baby powder lawsuits and pesticide lawsuits and breast implant lawsuits. And you, you know what I mean? Billions and billions of dollars been paid out in these junk, um, you know, tort cases. So, so I don't, I don't, I mean, it's great information they have here. I just don't know how we get that actually implemented in a course. So,
1: way. yeah, I think, I think, I think it's going to be really important for, um, anybody who's innovative and starts a company, to um, think about the implications of tort reform. Um, Tort is really, uh, unfortunately, dragging down a lot of companies. Now, if companies do something wrong, then absolutely, but if you have science-free claims that are actually bankrupting companies and depriving consumers of very valuable products um, and products, especially if they're really, really foundational to the stability of your, for example, agricultural system, that that is a problem. Um, so, like I've said before, glyphosate is the. It, well, agriculture is a foundation of civilization, and glyphosate is probably the most important chemistry in the world. And it's off patent. It's cheap. It's uh, got a very, very low toxicity. If and and it is not a carcinogen. And this this uh, the fear that's been generated by uh, people who are have have you know have the goal of making a company go bankrupt uh is 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 problematic um especially because you know it makes you you lose global agriculture we saw what happened in sri lanka when they banned glyphosate in the first place. So they banned glyphosate in a science-free claim that it caused kidney disease. And once again, these have all been really very closely analyzed and studied by regulatory agencies all over the world, independent scientists all over the world. Um, there's there's animal data, there's there's laboratory data, there there's epidata data that, that's very robust that shows that there's no association between glyphosate and cancer, no association between glyphosate and neurotoxicity, no association between glyphosate in kidney disease, but because of these claims, people make policy decisions, and those policy decisions are, are often not well thought out, um, and if they're done because of public pressure rather than because a regulatory body has looked at things very carefully and looked at the scientific data and weighed the, the evidence, uh, you, can, you can have some pretty severe consequences. So for uh, Sri Lanka in 2015, they banned glyphosate because of this claim. Uh, Tea is one of their major um, exports, and tea exports uh, pay for 71% of their food imports, according to the Food and Agricultural Organization. So their food security is dependent on that crop that's a cash crop for them. When you think about that island, it's a tropical island, um, and, it, and so the jungle grows very rapidly and so you have the jungle coming into the island, or into the tea plantations, and now you have young Tamil women hand-weeding the jungle. And what's in the jungle? Snakes. And not wussy snakes like we have in the United States. Copperheads, yeah. rattlesnakes. We have about 12 <laughs> snake bite deaths a year in the United States. These are crates and cobras and snakes that are deadly. Yeah. And it, workers were refusing to go. Uh, into the plantations, there are newspaper articles describing people's fear of being bitten by snakes. And in 2017, um, the World Health Organization classified snake bite as one of the leading neglected causes of morbidity and mortality in the developing world, largely affecting agricultural workers. So because of the fear around this, They had not only a huge um, economic impact, uh, negative impact on the country, um, and it it rattled food security, but you also have a real health trade-off that's very, you're talking about virtually, it's it's such a low toxicity chemical versus cobra bite. That's that's a pretty dramatic difference. And so it had such a negative impact on the economy um, that they wound up reinstating glyphosate in 2018. And then, because of public pressure, once again, and misguided information, they decided to just double down and ban all agro uh, agrochemicals and fertilizer. With the resulting effect uh, that the whole economy collapsed, they can't get energy, they can't get food, they can't get uh, they can't get healthcare. Everything collapsed. And in July, so they banned it in April of 2021. By July of 2022, they were the, the there was essentially a rebellion. The whole country overran the, uh, the president's office. He had to flee. Um, at, and uh, the economy is still in shambles because of this. Now, some people say, well, there are other things besides agriculture that are important, t- tourism and all, all of this stuff. There are other destabilizing factors, corruption. Well, multiple countries have corruption. Um They survived a twenty. They didn't collapse during a twenty-seven-year civil war. They didn't collapse during a um, after the tsunami. So this this is a a cautionary tale, and how important it is that you have good agricultural policy that's based on science rather than um, hype Um, and and fear mongering that's generated by people who have ulterior motives.
0: Yeah, very good points. It's always important to remember because um, I sometimes think about it, you know, like I get in fights with uh, evil people on Twitter like Carrie Gillum. <laughs> and, I, and I sometimes I'm like, why am I doing it? You know, is it worth insulting her? I'm like, yeah, it is because she's awful. And this is this is what happens, you know, because you have her. People like her who who poses journalists or they pose as activists. You know they're fighting the man, and then you have news outlets like the Guardian, which aren't news outlets. They're they're pay for play writers basically because they take money from foundations that have specific political agendas, and then they publish stories that that boost those agendas. That's all they do. And as Liza's saying, this kills people. You know it's it's awful, right? I mean, I, I couldn't imagine like going into my office where I work and be like, Oh, there's a snake that might kill me. Right. Like that doesn't even occur to me because exactly. like, you know, my world is so far removed from that, but that's the reality for a lot of these people. And then you have these Western wealthy progressive activists who say, I'm, you know, I'm sticking up for these people on the other side of the world. And you know, down with and Monsanto. It's just it's yeah, and they've
1: captured the imagination of academics who don't have enough of a background to understand what the realities are of agriculture. They remember two percent of the population farms, but you've got ivory tower academics, and I used to be an ivory tower academic, so I understand where they were and where they are. And so, I'm not. I'm not saying that those folks are. Uh, Poorly intended, or uh, it, it, the academics often aren't. Uh, the academics are often captured because they read this, these little snippets and they believe what they read. Um, and and so, but that that is, I mean, I mean, Stalin had a, a word for that—that's useful idiocy, right? So, <laughs> and, 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 and so, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to, you know, they they think they're doing the right thing, but the road to hell is p- paved with good intentions.
0: Yeah, yeah. Liza's not trying to be mean, I am. I think uh, it's, if you, I, really, I mean, you know, because I, I don't have to get grants and I don't have to work with these people. So I can tell you, this is, what you're doing is awful. You know, um, the one thing I will say, to be fair though, is that you get into an echo chamber and everyone's, so, you know, everyone can be, you know, a victim of that. Um, but in the academic space, Thomas Sowell, the economist talks about this in Intellectuals and in Society. And he says, you have all these big brain people that hang out with other big brain people. You know, they work in laboratories or they, you know, they're academics, they do ac- academics. And they all agree with each other, right? So so like you get your work reviewed by someone who shares all of your values and all of your assumptions and they stamp it and they go, good job, Steve. You know, thanks, Bob. Yeah, we, we're, we aren't we smart? And then all the, all the while, there's the real world out there. And what they think does not comport with the real world. But instead of going, you know, maybe i need to you know rethink my assumptions here it's like oh well wow, you know we just need to do more of this thing that we already know is right because everyone i talk to knows Says that this right. is right you know so i so in other words there's an important check on how people behave and what they think out here in reality which yes. is whether whether it, an, an idea works or not you know so if That's an entrepreneur right. has an idea and it fails he knows it failed because he didn't make any money, and his company. You know what I mean. But that, that sort of that's gone. You don't have that that mechanism in the academy. That's
1: anyways, exactly right. Anyways. That's exactly right. And it's a, it's a, you get then what you get is you actually get regulation because of, because of this kind of stuff and the, this kind of pressure. You get regulation by litigation or regulation by legislation, rather than using a scientific process and having trust um, in the regulatory agencies that have brought us a. You know, a, life, a lifestyle that has been is that is unrivaled, if, if compared to previous centuries. You know, romanticizing subsistence farming is not—it's it's, not—that's it's, not a smart idea. Um, and I have photographs; I will—I've posted them on Twitter of people hand-weeding the jungle. So I, I think that it's really important to um, think critically about the, the claims we think are correct.
0: Yeah. It's very important, and uh, we have a real-life example of this, as I mentioned. So I'm not just like throwing mud at people because I like to. I do like to, but I have we have really good, really good uh, uh, evidence for this in this case. So this is a story by Dr. Kevin Falta, who uh, was uh, Dr. Liza's predecessor here on the podcast, and he's writing this story for Genetic Literacy Project. And he's talking about a. Uh, it's called a research brief. So it was a peer-reviewed article. It was originally published in July. In a journal called Environmental Health Perspectives, which is widely known within our our science circle of trust as this phony journal where you just publish nonsense about chemicals. That's at least that's what I think. About that's it. So right. I, I won't speak for anyone else. I got to be careful here, but I, it's just largely a journal where you know if you want a study that says that PFAS are going to kill people, that's where you go to find right. find that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, so there was a study. They they looked at uh, twenty two pregnant women. And they measured the amount of glyphosate in their urine. And then 60% or 66% of these women had detectable amounts of glyphosate in their urine. And then our good friend, Carrie Gillum, who I was just singing praises of, um, she, pub- she coordinated several articles from different outlets that she works with. So there was The Guardian, there was the Environmental Working Group, and then there was a, an article in this outlet called The Conversation, which really should know better because their whole mission is to bring science down to average people, right? It's to get academics in front of the public and explain complicated science. And in this case, they're using that model, which is excellent, to lie to people, which is yes. really bad. Um, and the big problem that Kevin highlights in this story is that it was two of the authors of this peer-reviewed paper writing for The Conversation. And so their their academic article was much more measured. It was much more cautious in what they were saying. Um but they, they threw off all those restraints. So when they're writing for the conversation, they're, they're they're throwing around words like harm very liberally, and they're talking about there's no consensus on glyphosate safety, which is so preposterous at this point in time. Patently
1: false. Yeah. Patently false.
0: Yeah. yeah. Ke- Ke- and again, we've talked about it over. Kevin says it's f- it's 50 years of research, thousands of studies, different study designs, different parts of the world, different research teams. Industry, non-industry—it doesn't matter. There is, there, there is nothing. There's no there, there. It just, it just—I don't know what to tell you, right? It's, you know. Um, but they take this, this very limited data, and they imply that there's a threat here, and there's not. And we'll, we'll get into some of the specifics. You know, Kevin, Kevin does a great job of breaking down the technical science here and explaining it to people. So, um, let, let's get into the results. Why don't you, why don't you start with? you know, why finding a little bit of a chemical and we're talking like trace amounts, like tiny little amounts of a chemical in, um, in your urine or in somewhere in your environment is not necessarily evidence that you're in danger.
1: So one of the foundational principles of toxicology is that the dose makes the poison. And we know that trace, trace, trace doses in parts per trillion. Um, so you're talking about a one drop in a ten thousand gallon swimming pool, right? If you actually think about it, if you think about the principles of homeopathy, which a lot of people buy into, right? They <laughs> they they say that a trace trace amount of a poison um, that that gets diluted over and over and over and over again will confer protection against said chemical. So that's a whole principle behind homeopathy, right? And I don't believe in homeopathy, but I believe that if you dilute something incredibly, incredibly much, you are not going to have a, an, a, a poor outcome. So um, the dose makes a poison. Parts per trillion of, of glyphosate is not harmful at all. Um, it, 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 it does not bioaccumulate. It does not cause problems with, uh, with uh, gestation or babies or anything like that. It does, it's not neurotoxic. It's not a carcinogen. It's not going to hurt you, and it's a cornerstone of our agriculture um, and so when you're when people are making these claims that a very very tiny trace amount is resulting in things like cancer or autism or uh, neurodevelopmental neurodevelop- issues or, um, a del- or uh, changes in pregnancy length um, that that's that's all a speculation there is there there's absolutely nothing that to support that claim other than their own um, ideology. Um, and, and it's destructive. It's really destructive. Um, and I, I can't emphasize this enough. I mean, if you think about it, so, what, so one of the claims that they make is that, that preg- pregnancy length is shortened. And the, if you look at the length that it's shortened by, it's like one or two days, right? And if you can, if, 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 a, if an obstetrician could predict when a baby was due within days like with, within a that close of a rigid of a time frame people would be able to like schedule everything around their due date right but we know right. that there's like a, a two-week window somewhere where where the the woman got pregnant. So where fertilization occurred, we don't know exactly the right day unless you're actually keeping very close track of your fertility. Um, so there's a couple of days of wiggle room or two weeks of wiggle room around the front end. And then, you know, anywhere from 37 weeks to 40 weeks um, is, you know, considered normal. And then people go a little bit early, sometimes 36 weeks, babies usually do fine. You don't, don't don't tend to get into any kind kind of trouble at thirty six weeks, and you don't tend to get any into much trouble except for the baby being heavier at forty two weeks. So you've got a big huge range there. So making the claim that um, shortening gestation by a day or two is is a solid way of measuring uh, you know fetal harm is is beyond the pale. It's it's just not it's just not factually true and they and they're making claims like that and it scares people to death what should scare people to death is the fact that 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 this this is propaganda this is what that is it's propaganda and it is it is it will if you if you if you romanticize getting rid of all of pesticides you are going to wind up you know, being back in the middle ages and seeing uh, diseases of the middle ages and food insecurity. And I, it's, it's, it's very um, retrogressive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This, this annoys me to no end. Um, Cause my wife's pregnant right now with our, with our daughter and like the range of emotions you experience, especially for the woman, right. Carrying, carrying the child, the fears you have, the uncertainty around, you know, or, is our baby going to be healthy? Am I eating right? Am I, you know, am I exercising too much? Am I exercising too little? Am I sleeping enough? And like, this is all constantly circling around in your mind and to have people, you know, qualified scientists and major reputable outlets, like the conversation to have these people pushing this, for ideological reasons, because they don't like corporations or they don't like capitalism or they don't or like chemicals, you know, are just inherently bad in their worldview. That's shameful. That's shameful because there are real threats out there. There are real things that pregnant women need to be worried about. And for you to use your platform and your expertise to inject bullshit into, the, into, into this environment, excuse my language, I'm sorry, that, that's just over the line. It's, it's disgraceful.
1: Not, yeah, yeah. It's, dis- it's disgraceful. And, and it's, it's, it's tragic because what it does is you've, it, there has – we're in an inflationary period right now. We are spending hundreds of millions of dollars investigating a chemical that has been so well understood. It's probably the best understood chemistry on, on the planet, on the planet. And it gets repeatedly studied, repeatedly studied at taxpayer expense – um, at independent agencies expenses um, and in in the the results are consistently clear and so the question is how much more evidence can can we provide and and what what will help reassure people that this is this is it's okay I mean it, what's fascinating to me is a lot of the same people who think that organic food and I, and I don't have a huge problem with organic food. There's not a lot of, you know, but they use pesticides too. They're more expensive. They can't, it it can't realistically feed a growing population. But a lot of people who are, are religious about eating organic food have no qualms about putting the most potent neurotoxin known to mankind, injecting it in their faces for cosmetic purposes. Botulinum toxin will kill people unless you use it, and we, we don't have any problems using it for for beauty, um, because the dose that we use is going to be safe if you use it according to the label, right? People get hung up with, oh, what if I don't use it according to the label? If you don't use it according to the label, you can hurt yourself. Um, but... but On the whole realm of things, nanograms of botulinum toxin can be lethal. And I was involved with a case, I don't know if I've said this on a previous um, podcast, but I was involved with a case where a uh, doctor who had a a beauty clinic um, had a Botox party in Florida. Uh, with two friends and his girlfriend. Um, and he it decided to save money um, by buying research-grade botulinum toxin. And it said on the vial, not for human use, right? And he had a Botox party and gave a 17,000-fold dosing error. And then they flew to, uh, to uh, New Jersey for Thanksgiving. And they both presented to the ER with a rapidly descending paralysis. They, she was in the ICU, and she could only wiggle one toe in the ICU from November until May with a tracheostomy. So, the, you know, the hole in people's uh, necks that smokers used to have. But sometimes yeah. if, you, if you need that, if you're going to be intubated for a long time, on a ventilator yeah. for a long time, and, and a G-tube for feeding. For, from November to imagine that hospital bill, right? Um, so this is this is a le- this can be lethal, but because you can trust the regulatory agencies around this and the and the regulatory science around this product, there are also some really good things that come from it. Uh, you can use it therapeutically for other things besides besides just beauty. But we we per- we perceive this as okay, and so now you take a, a another chemistry that is. Once again, nowhere near the same toxicity profile, and 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 their people are incredibly fearful of it, and it's it's really unfortunate.
0: hmm. Yeah, um, Kevin talks about this <clears throat> in the story a little bit. Um, there, there are some some really low quality studies kind of like this one They're, like they don't they don't reproduce good results they just do the same dumb study so they take 15 or 20 women who live in a town where there is agriculture like in the Central Valley in California and they say well you live in a place where the average application rate of this pesticide is such and such and you have a slightly elevated rate of some stupid variable like like gestation, period or you yeah. know circumference of your baby's head or autism or like like they always find something and they go well you have a uh, you know 27 increased risk without reporting the absolute risk or giving people context to understand what that means
1: exactly and then,
0: and then then we get this then we get conversation stories like this and then we have to come on here and go well uh, you know pump the brakes let's talk about the details and it's what's funny to me is that if these claims were true because as they are wont to point out there are millions and millions of pounds of glyphosate applied to farms every every year right that's true but if that were a problem you would see it everywhere because everywhere. there's there's babies born everywhere everybody eats food there are trace amounts of glyphosate in a lot of the food that you have access to very small quantities if this was a threat it would like like it would be Something akin to smoking, I think, and correct me if that's wrong. That's but like, right. Like if, like if a mother smokes during pregnancy, you will see the effects almost certainly in her child. And if glyphosate was harmful in a measurable, serious way, you would you would see it, and you go, "Oh, she she was exposed to too many pesticides." But you don't see that because there is no risk.
1: That's exactly right. You and the the other thing is yes, I mean, because these are these are such small doses. These are non toxic doses. They're, they, it's just it's it's non-toxic doses. Uh, they're so 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 low. Um, but you will see the same pediatricians, and I, I, once again, I'm not trying to. I, I think pediatricians are well-intended. They don't know the agriculture literature. They don't know the the the, uh, the epidemiology or the toxicology behind this. They hear pesticides, they get very concerned. And so yeah. you will see you will see pediatricians who are well-intended who, who who will say um, you know absolutely not. Vaccines don't cause autism. How could you make that association? But right. this, the same crowd will say, well, yeah, you know, there's a, a lot of autism around, but, um, and, and so we think it's an environmental exposure like pesticides, it, it, but these are associations. They're not, they're, they're not causative. And there's, there's not a, there's not a mechanistic way for, for this to be happening. And so, um, Like I said, I think that a lot of people, a lot of academics, a lot of pediatricians want to do the right thing by their patients, want to do the right thing um, and and be correct. But they they don't know the literature in depth enough to be able to support these claims. Um, And the problem is that this is not just like, you know, baby powder. This is a chemical that is foundational to food security. Right. Um, and I think if they understood that, that might give them a little bit more pause.
0: One other thing that we can talk about a little bit—it relates to the "the dose makes the poison" thing. But Kevin points out that they re, they reported a range of values, so there was there was this much glyphosate to this much glyphosate in this sample of urine. But Kevin points out they didn't report what's called um, a limit of quantitation. Quantific-
1: yeah, quantification. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I guess the idea is you're supposed to, it's, it's like a confidence interval, right? You're supposed to say, I can say with this amount of certainty that the range is in here. But they didn't report that. So you don't really know, like, how much was there. Can you talk about How much that?
1: was there? Yeah. So the, the, just because you detect, so there, there's some, there, for laboratories to be able to um, have a validated assay for measuring things, you want to make sure that when you measure something repeatedly, you're getting a, a, a good number right? You're getting the correct report. And so there are levels of detection, and then there are levels of quantification. And laboratories will say, so just because you detect a trace amount of something there, you're not actually able to say exactly how much is there, right? And so the level of quantification is one of the standard... um, validation tools that tested tests use and you'll see over and over in this kind of literature um, so you, it, it helps you it helps you tease out if, if something's a false positive right so or it, so it, it makes it more reliable and reproducible and without that metric and it's a little bit technically complicated but without that metric you can't really make a claim that you are getting a consistent Levels. You just a trace detection. One has no implications on whether or not the, uh, the about the validity of the actual assay, and a trace detection has um, a no no um, no uh, uh, reliable um, uh, no no health outcome. There's a, there's not a health implication from that. So uh, these like well, like I said, these are non toxic. Doses and 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 once again back to you know our Ames study that we like to quote all the time. Uh, Bruce Ames uh, wrote a study I want to say in 1991, and 99% of the pesticides you eat um, or are exposed to are chemistries that plants make to protect themselves because they can't run away from you, and those are those traces are in orders of magnitude higher to from that than any trace pesticide you'll find on your on your produce produce right and so think about it, it apple seeds and peach pits and things like that have cyanogenic compounds in it you if you eat enough of those they'll turn into cyanide so so, and you can have cyanide poisoning um and the reason why they are it's it, they're like seed coatings for their seed their own seeds they're like all, mother right. nature seed coatings, right right and so so <laughs> they're it, it's protecting itself um because it, it's it's their you know instinct is survival of the fittest, right um and so you will find doses of those chemistries in much higher concentrations than you will for for the chemistries that are applied yeah. to plants and for, for crop protection, um, and we would never tell people not to eat fruits and vegetables because you have higher concentrations of chemicals that could be toxic um, yeah. in a high enough dose yeah,
0: Scientific American will do that incidentally
1: yeah <laughs> yeah
0: um, it, it is it's, it's, it's striking when you think about it, like like why would a tobacco plant produce nicotine you know? right exactly and, like, and why would caffeine? be found in in nature right like we enjoy it because it's like oh it's a little stimulant or you know if you use tobacco or whatever it's you get a little buzz from it and you enjoy it or whatever but like the plant doesn't right the plant like the tobacco plant's like well i really need a marlboro right Right? like that's just (laughs) you know it's
1: the plant's like i don't want a bug to eat me
0: (laughs) (laughs) right Right. So it serves a purpose. You know, it, it, it appears in nature for a
1: reason. And it's, that's exactly anyways, right. Well, I mean, yes, it is fascinating. That's exactly right. Um, and, and we actually make our own very own pesticide in our own skin, vitamin D. So the same vitamin D that is made in our skin when the sunlight hits our skin is used as a rodenticide for rats so I mean, we've got, in fact, a lot of people are vitamin D deficient. They you supplement with vitamin D. So yeah, it's it, the, the the notion that a that that there's some kind of mystery to the dose makes a poison is is a little bit unfortunate. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: Our our dogs are passionate about pesticides as well. They get really frustrated by Kerry Gillum and the Guardian, <laughs> so they they bark all the time. Um, all right. Well, let's let's end there. And uh, we we've only ta- talked about two stories and uh, we just went we just went nuts because <laughs> we're so passionate <laughs> about this stuff. Um, but we'll stop there. Thank you for joining us. As always, we'll be back next time for 248. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter. It's at Dr. Liza, M.D., at Cam at genetic literacy for GLP because they put this on for us. Make it all possible. So follow them. Read their content. Thank you so much. See you next time.
1: Thank you. Have a good week and happy holidays.
0: Yes. Happy new year.